one of the most foundational teachings of the Bible is that God's love and grace are overwhelming, sufficient to conquer even the greatest levels of evil and weakness. Right? God insists over and over again that in the face of his love and grace, sin, sorrow, even death itself will be done away with. His love is an irresistible force. And you see that as God leads Israel out of Egypt and into the Promised Land. But then you look at the world, and you see evil, and war, and oppression, and sickness, and death continuing unabated. You look at your own life, right? And even if you're trusting in Christ, you see your sin is not gone. You still see pride and selfishness and greed and envy and laziness and a lack of faith, and on and on a pretty unattractive list goes. Human sin feels like an immovable object. And many, many people have fallen into despair because of the ongoing presence of sin and evil in the world. Many, many Christians have fallen into despair because of the ongoing presence of sin in their own lives. Sin feels like an unconquerable enemy. It feels like an immovable object in our lives and in the world. And you see that persistently as Israel keeps on rebelling against God, keeps on refusing to trust Him, no matter how many miracles He does, no matter if he parts the sea, no matter how well he provides for them. See, in in many ways, the story of the Bible is the story of how God's irresistible love and grace overcome the seemingly intractable nature of human sin. And Hosea, our book for today, is one of the clearest pictures in the Bible of that tension. Now, Hosea is a hard book, He he prophesied during a period of deep and committed sin in Israel, leading right up to when they're finally destroyed by Assyria and taken into exile. Things are going very, very badly. This is a dark period in the history of God's people. The people are not listening. They will not turn to God. We're going to be looking in chapter 11. It's on page 757. Um, Hosea 8 to 10, the three chapters leading up to our, our passage, are really a picture of the far extremities of earthly judgment brought about in response to the far extremities of human sin. In those chapters, Israel doggedly, determinedly, persistently refuses to turn away from their idolatry and arrogance and evil. They will not turn to God, and they do what they want without regard for Him they seem to be immovable. So you see things like this back in chapter 8, verse 12. We read that Israel has gone so far away from God that not only are they rejecting his word, but if they actually heard his word, it would sound strange to them. In verse 14, they've forgotten their maker and God promises to destroy their cities. You you turn to chapter 9 and verse 7, and you see that they reject the prophets God sends them as fools and madmen. And so God says punishment is coming, what else can he do? In chapter 10, verse 1, they use the gifts God has given them for idolatry. Verse 3, they explicitly reject God 
openly proclaiming, we do not fear the Lord. Verse 13, at the end of the chapter, it ends with a promise that they will be utterly cut off. And here's the essence of the problem. God's holy character in the face of Israel's persistent rebellion makes judgment inevitable and necessary. But God's character in the face of his loving choice of them makes that judgment impossible. Judgment must come, but judgment can't come. And so in chapter 9, verse 15, you see God say, I began to hate them. Because of the wickedness of their deeds, I will love them no more. See, when God's perfect nature is confronted by their evil and their betrayal, that's the only possible response. He has to judge them. God does not love evil. He stands against it. But then you see in the initial verses of our chapter, God proclaiming that he loves Israel and that he's chosen them. See, when God's nature is confronted by the fact that he has loved and chosen his people, he must not ultimately and finally judge them. He can't cut them off. And all of this is true because God's love is constraining. His love constrains us, but in a different way it constrains him too. And his love makes it impossible for him to simply do away with his adulterous people because he has willed to love them and he cannot break his own will. And so Hosea is a picture of the conflict that happens when the constraining aspect of God's love meets the rebellious human heart. Our passage has four sections. We're going to read it here in just a second, but we'll learn about these four things. First, how God's love constrains us. Then how we reject that constraint resulting in condemnation. And then how God's love constrains him, causing him to reject that very same condemnation. And then finally, how his love remakes us. And all together, they teach us this. The constraining love of God will transform the rebellious human heart. So let's read our passage, and we'll get started. Hosea 11, verses 1 to 11. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love, And I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king, because they have refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me. And though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not a man, 
the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. They shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. And I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. First, verses 1 to 4. How God's love constrains us. Now, verse 1 begins, When Israel was a child, I loved him. And the whole first section is built on the analogy of God's people as a small child being cared for by their parent. So in verse 3, God teaches them how to walk. In verse 4, he bends down and feeds them because they're little and can't feed themselves. Right? And the idea is straightforward. God's a good father. He genuinely loves those that he has called to be his children. And like any good parent, God's love puts boundaries around his people. He says in verse 4, I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love. Cords and bands are words of binding, words of restraint, right? Your, your child wants to run out into the road, you restrain them. Your child wants to pull the pretty pot of boiling water off the stove, you restrain them. Your child wants to eat cookies all day long, you restrain them. We restrain them, right? Your, your child wants to play instead of doing their homework, you restrain them right? At, a, at its very core, the love that a parent has for their child is constraining. You constrain them to protect them. You constrain them to teach them. You constrain them to help them. You constrain them because you love them, and you want them to thrive and be blessed. And so, God's love constrains us. It requires certain things. It forces us in certain directions. It blocks off certain paths. But these initial verses show us something else as well. It's not just that God's love constrains Israel, but they reject that constraint. They don't like it. The more they were called, the more they went away, Hosea says in verse 2. Meaning, they think God is holding them back. They don't understand that his motives for them are good, that he knows what's best for them. They did not know that I healed them, he says in verse 3. And every decent parent knows what this is like. It starts incredibly young, right? Like you put your toddler down for a nap, and he screams like you're out to get him, right? You, you change your little girl's diaper so she can be comfortable and not get a rash, Right? And she fights you like you're trying to torture her. You feed them healthy food so they can be strong and healthy, and they act like you're trying to poison them. Right? And as your kids get older, the same things keep happening. They just take new forms. Right? You tell them that's enough TV because you want to protect their minds and help them develop good habits, and they act like the world is unjust. Right? You make them be kind to their siblings because you know that life is so much more blessed when we're at peace with one another, and they act like you're overbearing. Now, when you've passed through one phase of life, it is incredibly easy to look at those in an earlier phase and see their folly, right? The teenager looks at the rebellious toddler and says, silly kid. The adult looks at the rebellious teenager and says, silly kid. 
it is a picture of how we all look to God. When we complain about God's commands, or when we feel like we're being kept back from what we really want by some restraint God has put on us, we are simply a grown-up version of a, temper ha- t- of a two-year-old having a temper tantrum because he has to hold dad's hand to cross the street. Now, when we're the ones doing it, we don't feel like it. We feel justified. But that is exactly what we are. God's love constrains exactly because it is real love. And love protects. Love seeks the good of the other. Love desires blessing and happiness in the life of the beloved. And all these things cause it to constrain. But Israel doesn't see this. They think God is holding them back. They think God is getting in their way. They reject the cords he has put on them. They break free. They run after their idols and desires. So the first thing we learn is that God's love is constraining. And that brings us to our second section, verses 5 to 7. And here we see that the result of Israel rejecting God's love is that they forfeit it. Right? The result of their rebellion is condemnation. So Israel has rebelled against God at this point. They have persisted in sin. They've run to the beds of other lovers and bound themselves to idols. And in doing that, they have cut themselves off from God's love. Right? Just as a husband or wife does if they abandon their spouse and persistently run into the arms of another. So Hosea prophesies the conquest of the northern kingdom of Israel. They'll be given over to Assyria. They'll be destroyed, which is simply to say that the result of our sin is judgment. That truth is simple, it's straightforward, and it's right and good and just. And you see, the problem is not simply that Israel is sinful. It's what he says in verse 5. They have refused to return to me. Meaning, naturally, we are persistently committed to our sin. Now, if you're familiar with the book of Hosea, you know that Hosea's wife, Gomer, is a picture of this. At the beginning of the book, God commands Hosea to marry a prostitute uh, in order to use their relationship as a lived parable of his relationship with his people. Now, if you set aside for a moment that God commanded Hosea to do this, would anyone have told Hosea, that's a good idea, well chosen, brother, right? Many of us have friends make this kind of mistake. They'll start to date someone with really serious problems. They love the other person. They want to help them. They want to fix them. They, they get married thinking they can change the other. And so often it ends really badly because we don't have the power to change or fix other people. And so it's very easy to imagine those around Hosea telling him, I told you so, after his wife ran off. He married an unfaithful woman. He shouldn't be surprised to see, as he does find out, he is not the father of most of his children. He shouldn't be surprised that she ends up in the bed of other lovers. Now, if you saw your friend getting into this kind of relationship, you would probably warn them against it, right? You would try to stop them. Should someone have tried to stop God? Verse 7, my people are bent on turning away from me. 
Really hear that verse. My people are bent on turning away from me. Not the world, not other nations, my people. And God knew that before he called them. He knows what we're like. He knows who we are. Right, Christians, Christ died for you. He was stripped naked, laughed at, speed on, beaten, nailed to a piece of wood, and left hanging there until he died. All the while, people stood around enjoying the show. And that wasn't even the worst part, right? The Bible hardly talks about his physical suffering at all, because while he was on the cross, the very wrath of God was being poured out on him, right? He was absorbing all of the anger, all of the justice, all of the holy punishment and vengeance that had been stored up against all of the sin of all of God's people across all of the centuries. Hell came down on him, and he did it for you, and he did it for me. He chose us. He loves us. But look at us, right? And right now, I'm just talking to those of you who would say, I truly believe the gospel. We look at God's love for us, and yet our selfishness goes on. Greed, it goes on. Fear, anxiety, they go on. Our complaining goes on. That's crazy. How, how can that be? How can we persist in sin given what God has done for us? My people are bent. So God looks at Israel and he says what he has to say. He does what he has to do. Verse 6, the sword shall rage against their cities. Verse 7, he shall not raise them up at all. Naturally, we reject the constraints of God's love, and the necessary consequence of that is condemnation. That's the second thing we learn. And you see it over and over again in the Bible, right? The result of sin is judgment. And if people are bent on sin, that must mean that judgment is coming. But if that was all there was to the story, there would be no Bible because there would be no story to tell. And so we come to our third section, verses 8 to 9. You see, it's not just that God's love constrains us. God's love constrains him. Let me read those two verses again. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. In effect here, he's saying judgment is right and appropriate. It is just and necessary. And yet God says that in the case of the people he has chosen, judgment is impossible. My heart recoils within me. In effect, God there is saying his nature resists the very thing that his nature requires. His nature requires judgment because we have persistently rebelled against him. And at the end of the day, you cannot be married to somebody who constantly and endlessly runs off after other lovers. Yet at the very same time, 
His nature rejects judgment on his people because he has chosen them as his people. Now, we need to be very careful here because the way God's love constrains him is not at all like the way his love constrains us. See, when we are constrained, often, it is against our will. But God's love constrains him according to his will. Right? It's not something imposed on him from the outside. God freely, willingly, intentionally chose to love his people. He knew what he was getting into. He knew what it would cost him. Just like Hosea knew who he was marrying. He bound himself to his people because he desired to. But nonetheless, he did it. And just as God will not violate his own justice, so too he will not violate his loving choice of his bride. His nature resists carrying out the very judgment that his nature requires. Now, Adma and Zeboiim were two of the cities that were destroyed with Sodom and Gomorrah. Meaning that though God, and God weeps over sin in all cases, he weeps over judgment in all cases, but his heart doesn't recoil at all judgment. But the very thing that God did to those cities is the very thing he says he cannot do to Israel. Well, why not? What's the difference? You see, it has nothing to do with what his people deserve. It's not that Israel is better than Adma and Zeboim. The entire point of Hosea marrying Gomer is to demonstrate God's people could not possibly be worse or more undeserving. Right? Notice that verse 9 says, I will not execute my burning anger. He does not deny that he has burning anger towards his people. He does not dispute that he should have burning anger toward his people. To the contrary, he says, I am full of wrath and judgment toward my people. And yet he insists he will not carry it out. Why not? It's because, as Jose already told us, God had adopted them as his child and chosen them as his bride. This is grace. Pure, free, unmerited, entirely driven by the nature of God himself and not the nature of those whom he saves. I will not, de I will not destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man. This is our hope. Because no human would do what God does. Right? He perseveres in grace, and he perseveres in his plan of salvation because of who he is. J.I. Packer describes God's love like this. He writes, Whereas human passions, especially the painful ones, fear, grief, regret, despair, are in a sense passive and involuntary, being called forth and constrained by circumstances not under our control, the corresponding attributes in God have the nature of deliberate, voluntary choices, and therefore are not of the same order as human passions at all. So the love of God, who is spirit, is no fitful, fluctuating thing, as human love is, nor is it a mere impotent longing for things that may never be. It is rather a spontaneous determination of God's whole being in an attitude of benevolence and benefaction, an attitude freely chosen and firmly fixed. God wills to love his people. 
and he will do it. Now, as English readers, we miss an important parallel in the passage. God says in verse 5, they have refused to return to me. Then he says in verse 9, I will not again destroy. But the way you say again is I will not return to destroy. It's the same word. And, And the point is this. If judgment is the response to sin, then human refusal to return from sin and toward God should result in a divine refusal to turn from judgment. But God insists that's not always true. I will not return to destroy, meaning again destroy, because I am God and not man. Which is to say this, the fundamental factor in human history is God, not people. The decisive factor in salvation is not our faith and righteousness, though we do need faith and righteousness. But the decisive factor is God's commitment to redeeming a people for himself. And if that was not true, there would be no salvation. Because it is true, anybody can be saved. God has willed to love his people. And he has willed to be constrained by that love. Now, God is just, so he must do justice. God is merciful, so he must do mercy. This is the singular great tension of the Old Testament. Right? God insists that we deserve judgment and that the penalty for sin must be paid and will be paid. And yet he also insists that he will forgive and redeem a people for himself. And that brings us to our last two verses. So, where are we so far? As we talk about the constraining aspects of God's love, we've, we've seen how God's love constrains us, requiring certain things for our good. We've seen the way that naturally we rebel against that, bringing about judgment. Then we've seen the way God's love constrains him, causing him to resist carrying out the judgment our sin deserves because of his love for his people. So, how does this all get reconciled? See, when, when God's nature confronts Israel's rebellion, the necessary co- consequence is judgment. Yet when his nature confronts his choice to make Israel his people, the result is redemption. God is not divided. He is not at war with himself. He is utterly consistent, utterly at peace in all of his deeds and all of his thoughts. Which means God must be able to reconcile these two things. And verses 10 and 11 insist that he can. In effect, these last two verses tell us that reality will ultimately bend to God's loving choice. It will not ultimately bend to human sin. Meaning, though we are bent on sin, God will bend us back. And in the end, all things will bend to his will. Now, Hosea does not explain exactly how this can happen, but he insists that it will. Look at the images that he uses. Now, back in chapter 5, God had used the image of a lion to speak of judgment. There you read, I will be like a lion to Ephraim. I will tear, I will carry off, and no one shall rescue. But here, the image of the lion is turned on its head. The lion roars, but not in judgment, but calling people out of exile to return home. And the image of the dove is the same. In chapter 7, Israel was described as a dove, silly and without sense, 
running off after other nations for salvation. And there we read that God will catch them in a net and they'll be like a bird caught in a trap. But here, the dove is not caught in a trap, but rather the people are pictured as doves flying through the air to return to their homes. Which is to say, judgment has become salvation. Though his people will not turn themselves, God insists that he will turn them. Though they will not return on their own, he will bring them back, and they will come. But how? Hosea doesn't tell us, and it may be that he did not know. But we get a hint at the end of the passage. Verse 11 ends with the words, declares the Lord. Literally, it says, the declaration of the Lord. So on what basis are Hosea's readers to believe what he has said? The declaration of the Lord. You could just as well translate that, the word of the Lord. God's word created the world. His word will recreate the world. His word will recreate his people. His word will turn judgment into righteousness and salvation. Over and over again, the Old Testament insists that's true. God will judge, and yet he will forgive. His wrath will be poured out, and yet his people will not be destroyed. Now, it's not until the word became flesh that his people could understand how that could be true. That God cannot abandon the punishment of sin, because that would be to abandon justice and goodness. But he cannot abandon his people, because that would be to abandon his loving choice to redeem. And so one day, the declaration of the Lord will not simply be written. He will come. And he will bring about the things Hosea has spoken here. And Hosea didn't know what we knew, but he knew it was true. That God would satisfy the justice his people deserved without destroying his people. And so Christ came. He was unmade so that we could be remade. He was torn apart so that we could be rebuilt. He was condemned for our sin so that we could be received as the people of God. Our sin is great. And our sin is inexcusable. And left on our own, our sin would leave us forever trapped. Left on our own, our sin is an immovable object, permanently twisting and destroying our lives and world. But we are not on our own. God has spoken, and he has come. The lion allowed himself to be torn on our behalf so that we would not be. The word let himself be caught in a trap so that we could be set free. Listen, God knows who you are. He knows how deep your sin and rebellion go. Before he ever created Adam and Eve, he knew what it would take to restore his adulterous people. That's why Christ is called the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. God understood who he was marrying. And God knew that he could not ultimately destroy the people he had chosen for himself because he does not want to, because he has set his love upon them. 
and he knew how great the cost would be. Some of you likely feel that you are too sinful, too shameful, too unclean. You feel the weight of your betrayal, and you know that you deserve judgment. Your sin is not stronger than God's love. And in the end, it is not our rebellion, but God's will to redeem that will shape the course of history. You cannot break his love. You cannot be disqualified because of what you have done. That is not the question. God loves his people despite who we are. The question is simply this. Will you receive his love and let him bring you home? Let's pray. Father, truly you are a great God in every way, in every facet, so far beyond what we understand and utterly beyond what we deserve. Lord, we are grateful that you have willed to redeem that you have not abandoned your creation, that you have not abandoned us. Lord, that you sent your son, that he lived the life we should live and he died the death we should die, and he rose and he lives forevermore. So Lord, will you soften our hearts? Will you help us to see the depth of your love, that we would come to you and walk in your ways? We pray in Christ's name, amen.